I get more of a laugh off of that little tired line than I ever get from a joke. So I, it just works, so I'll keep on using it, I guess. Thank you, Pastor Sam, for that prayer time. And I want to bring a couple things to you that you might have already been thinking about or even heard about in the way of announcements. So if, there, if there's a little redundancy here, forgive me. We're into redundancy today, <laughs> taking offerings twice and making announcements a couple of times. But uh, I do want to mention that the, uh, we have a couple more Saturdays to go with the uh, prayer meetings that we're doing here. The Seek God for the City Guide is a, about a 40-day journey of prayer. A lot of you have the guide, and uh, we're, we're coinciding the Saturday dates of this little booklet, thank you, uh, with, with the, the meetings here. And we're probably running 40 to 50 people here on Saturdays, and it's really been good. If you've been a part of one of those, you know it's, it's something special. And so uh, I want to just make mention the next two Saturdays uh, we'll be finishing up here. Then we're, then we're locating to another church. We're going to be going to Southside Church of the Nazarene. And from there, we're going to go to Bethel Free Lutheran. And from there, I don't know where, where we're headed. We'll be going somewhere else. But uh, the ministerial, the Minot Ministerial, which, an e which is an evangelical group of, of ministers that uh, your pastors are affiliated with, we're really partnered up and we're working together to do things together, to pray together, to study together, to encourage each other, to support each other, to help each other be accountable. And so uh, we want to serve our community as a, as a group of shepherds. And we think that one way to do that is, is simply leading things like we're doing here. So I just encourage you to come if you're able. 9.15, Saturday morning. Uh, we try to get done by about 10.15, 10.20, right in there. And it, it's just been exciting. And we've been seeing answers to prayers. Uh, that's really exciting when you see that happening. So. I have to mention that. And if you are planning or hoping to come tonight for the Moody Men's uh, Choir, uh, they are still planning to be here. I've been in touch with their bus, quite literally, uh, since they left Chicago yesterday morning at 5 a.m. Uh, they made it safely to Jamestown last night. They're doing a concert this morning at our sister church uh, in Jamestown, Temple. And after that, they're heading to Bismarck. They're heading into storm country. And I mentioned to their director, I said, once you get that far and you look at the weather there, you'll have a decision to make. Do you press on 100 miles north to Minot, knowing that if you make it, you may not leave <laughs> for two or three days? Uh, I said, we're ready for you, and we look forward to having you. But uh, we're, we're, I said, come ready to stay if you, if you get through here. Because uh, based on what we're seeing in the forecast models, uh, it's probably gonna, you're probably going to get stuck here. So at this moment, they're planning to come. We still have a concert scheduled tonight. If that changes this afternoon, if they elect not to journey up here, you can check the church's Facebook page. And if you say, I'm not on Facebook or, or I'm not going to, I don't know how to check the church web page, uh, you have every permission to just call us. Would you call me at home? I'll put one of my sons on uh, sentry duty on the phone. And I say, you answer every call. And you say yay or nay, there, there's a concert or there isn't, because we'll have that up-to-date information. We don't want you to wonder. You have no reason to wonder, should I drive in or not? If you're not sure, you don't have the latest, you can call the church, but we may or may not have somebody picking up. Call, up, call my house, okay? 838-7258. And I'm, I'm in the book, but call us, call, call a house. I'll have a, I'll have a teenager ready to take your call. Answer all your questions. He might have more questions for you, actually, but uh, he's a teenager. So, But anyway, uh, please don't come here uh, with, with a question mark in your mind. I hope it's there. I don't know if it's really on, if it's still on, if the weather's a little iffy. Call us, okay? We'll have an answer. But I can't call all of you. 
I'll, I'll, we'll put it on the media, but if you don't check that or use that frequently, just call our house, okay? Please do that, because we want everyone's safety first and foremost. But if we're able to meet tonight, it's here, 6.30, and then we're going to go downstairs and have root beer and orange floats as the snow falls, and hopefully we can then get out of here and go home. So it's going to be an interesting day, to say the least, if, uh, if we only knew, right? Uh, we, we, we pray about this and leave it in the Lord's good hands. Let me draw your attention back to the book of Mark. We are back. Of course, we didn't really leave it for long. I took a small break from that uh, series two weeks ago to take you into a short but important message on church vision. Then Pastor Barry took us into chapter 2 last week, and he took us uh, through a, a few verses starting at, at verse 13 in Mark 2. Uh, but he didn't, if you're wondering, well, what happened to, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? What happened to that? Well, it's here. It's today. We're just doing it out of sequence. So that's the part I'm giving you today. So he took the verses following this. I'm doing the verses just ahead of it. Mark 2, 1 through 12. And so if you are ready for that, good. If you're not, let's get ready. That's where you want to be today. A story probably all too familiar to us. A lot of us heard that, the story that is uh, written here as we were children. We probably saw this story in those little color children's Bible books of this man being lowered down uh, by four friends on the roof of a home. Uh, he was a paralytic and he was being dropped through a hole in the ceiling that his friends had made, dropped down into a crowd below where Jesus was, was teaching. This is the story. Now try to dispense, put away with some of your thoughts about that. I want you to look at this with fresh eyes. I want us to think about this with fresh eyes and really have a real biblical, uh, good, hard look at this today. So with that, uh, with your mind open to that and your Bible open to that, let me just open up with a, a short prayer. Father, thank you for your holy word today. Thank you that the weather, uh, that you held it back, that we can meet together. I count every Sunday that we're here a blessing because uh, we don't take it for granted. There have been some Sundays where we're not able to come together, and we miss it. We miss the fellowship. We miss the, the, the communication of really as the family of God with, with being here and serving you together. It's so good. It's so good to be out together. Thank you for those that could come. Thank you for giving many wisdom to stay home today. We, we understand that too. And Lord, uh, we pray that you'd give the Moody Choir uh, folks great wisdom and safety today. They've come a long way, and it's hard to to slow down, to not push through, but we want them to be smart and safe. Would you give uh, Doc Singley and his bus driver a lot of wisdom today and show them what you would have them to do? We can't make a decision for them. We can give them some thoughts. We pray that they will do what's best for, uh, for, for all involved and that we would understand whatever has to be. If we're able to host them, we will. Uh, hopefully we can host them with grace and, and uh, much love, and if we have to go a little beyond a night, might we do that with, with extra grace, Lord. Thank you for uh, your love. We look to you now for your help to understand your word and, and to apply it. Oh, God, help us. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a story this last week of a, of a businessman, true story of a, a, a businessman who started four separate billion-dollar companies. With that kind of success, It'd be easy to say his life must be a breeze. Well, maybe on some levels it is. He probably doesn't worry about uh, how he's going to pay the water bill next month. Not an issue. Yet, his own words in the interview that he gave recently to an American magazine 
definitely reveal something's missing. He went through a divorce, and then after that happened, he began a relationship with a famous celebrity, which ended in a breakup, which followed with a reunion of sorts. The relationship restarted, but then it ended with another breakup. And so now he's living alone without any person in his life of, of great interest, without somebody close, and he's 46 years old. And he says, quote, being in a big empty house and no footsteps echoing through the hallways, no one over there at the house, he says, how do you make yourself happy in a situation like that? And he ponders his life today, and he compares it to a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of sorts of when he was a child. He says, when I was a child, there was one thing I said, I never want to be alone. And then he whispered again, I never want to be alone. And yet that's his reality in the life that he has. And I think most of us here in this room have lived long enough to know that true riches in life are comprised of a lot more than the traditional things that we think of when we think of, of riches, of material things. True riches in life extend beyond the categories we, we often consider. And in fact, it's possible to have this world's riches, as our story of Elon Musk illustrates, and miss out on the greater riches that have little to do with dollars. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that some of the happiest people that you and I might ever meet are not people of great means. They're people of probably very meager means, but they're rich in faith. They're rich in, in other things. And what would some of those other things be? Now, years and years ago, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to attend a a Billy Graham tr uh, training center event at the Cove in Asheville with the late Larry Burkett. It was one of the, the last seminars that he did with Crown Financial uh, Seminars. And the presenter uh, that worked with him, his name was Jack Anderson. We actually had him at the church here uh, sometime later because we struck up a friendship and I invited Jack to come here. Jack at that seminar talked about, about other categories of riches and it was it was kind of obvious, but something I, I hadn't thought about a lot. He, he told us at that conference, which was attended by probably six to 800 people, he said, learn to think, as you think about stewardship, learn to think about other, other things that comprise riches in life other than just dollars and cents, such as health. Health is a wonderful gift. If you don't have good health, you don't have much in life. It's hard to enjoy much else. Think about friendships as a true form of, of riches. If you've got good friends, you, you're rich. The man in the story today in the Bible had some pretty amazing friends. They didn't stop at little obstacles to help him. Maybe they were childhood friends. Maybe they knew him from, from long ago, perhaps, but they stopped at nothing to serve his needs, to get him to Jesus, to, to get him the care that he needed. And great things happen when we go out of our way for other people or when they do that for us. True riches fill many categories. Good health, friendships, meaningful work is a, is a treasure. The Word of God says as much. The whole book of Ecclesiastes tells us that our work is a gift from God. So that bumper sticker has it wrong. That bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Truth be told, too many times we treat our work as a curse 
instead of a blessing. And the truth is it's a blessing. To be able to serve with our hands, our hearts, our minds, to, to serve people that, who are made in God's image, to en enhance or encourage their life in some form or fashion. Any form of legitimate work is, is, is in some respects an imitation of God. We're made in, think of this, we're made in the image of God, according to Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3. We're made in his image. And God is the creator. God is a worker. God created the world. He worked to make the world. And so I put that together for you in just a moment, and it's not too difficult. I mean, I've thought about this. Somebody put it together for me, so let me share it with you. God is a worker. He works. He creates us, and we are made in his image. And so part of what it means to be made in the image of God Part of what it means to bear the image of God is to be a worker, because he's a worker. Think of that. Now, to be made in the image of God means more than that, but it doesn't mean less than that. So when you do legitimate work in your life, you're imitating your creator. You're functioning according to the image of God that you've been created in. Think of that. That's powerful. Doesn't that affect the way you will do your work that day when you think about that? You're doing what you're created to do and you're imitating your creator in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a representative way as you've been made in his image. He's a worker, and you're a worker as his child, doing what he's created you to do in sustaining and continuing the, the created order in the world that he made. It's like a partnership. And in your season, in your time here on this earth, you're a continuation of his gracious good work of continuing work on this earth that benefits people. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. That's, that's huge. Well, I'm on a bit of a rabbit trail there, but I believe that. So meaningful work. And, and then I'll give you another one here. Uh, there's another one here. Here, let's put them all up. Knowing that you belong to the family of God. That's my, my little list here. And I raise a question of that little list of true riches. Riches apart from dollars and cents, which is kind of the main category we tend to think about when we think of the word riches. Which of the gifts that you see on your screen, which of those would you consider to be the greatest? They're all gifts. Health is a gift, and friendships are gifts, and having good work is a gift, and being a believer and in, in, in a follower of, of the Lord is a great gift. Uh, the Bible calls that a gift, but which is the greatest of those? I hope that's an obvious answer to you. I think the text answers it for us today as we look at verse 2 in particular, but let's come to the text I'm going to read through all of it that we're looking at, but I would like you to draw particular attention just to verse 2. Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, or Capernaum, after some days, we don't know what some days looks like. If that's a few days, if it's a few weeks, we're not really given that. Mark's not into details here. He's a bit more of a macro guy, not a micro. But when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Not told specifically, was that Peter's home? Where, what home was it? But we do know that Capernaum was his, his, basically his ministry center in the Galilee region. And so he's back. And, and we know that the book of Mark had its first beginnings, really, in Capernaum, where Jesus' ministry was uh, very prominent as he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then he went off and, and he cast out that evil spirit back in chapter 1. And then he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 2 it says, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room. Standing room only, not even at the door. 
So wherever this house was, if it was Peter's house again or another house, Jesus is back in town. And his renown is pretty significant at this point. He's back. The teacher's back. The rabbi's back. That, that newcomer's back. Th this man of Nazareth is back. Whatever the hubbub, whatever the words were that were describing him at this fairly early point in his ministry, the, the word was out on the street. He's back, and boom, here come the people around that house. And so we get the details, at least some details. There's no room. Now here's, here's the clue about that I, I was hinting at here. And he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the word to them. The main ministry of Jesus was not a healing ministry, although his ministry obviously included healing and included other miracles, but he was preaching the word. He was preaching the word to them. What is that word? What was the word? Well, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 27, if your Bible's open, if it isn't, open it. 127, it says that, his teaching, again, not giving us the specifics of, of the content of his teaching, but again, that's not hard to figure out from the whole of Scripture. It says in chapter 1, verse 27, it says that those who heard him were amazed. It talks here about the nature of his teaching, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? I want you to see the focus here of, of, of Jesus' ministry. His main mission was his teaching and or preaching ministry. It was authoritative. If you jump down to verse 38 of chapter 1, it says, let us, Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. My simple point here that I'm wanting to underscore is that his mission, main mission, the people, the reason I'm bringing it up, let me step back. There was a, there was a lot of, as I said, hubbub around Jesus' ministry here. People like a show. People love to see, what's he going to do next? And I'm not being irreverent when I say this. Please don't misinterpret me that way. But when he came back to town, to Capernaum, you know what I think was in the hearts of a lot of people? They just wanted to see a spectacle. They weren't necessarily seriously believing that he's the Messiah. Oh, they, there was anticipation. There was, ex, there was a messianic expectation. There was interest. But people love a three-ring circus. People love to be entertained. People love to be wowed. What's he going to do now? What's he going to say? How's he going to upset those religious authorities now? What's he going to do next? Honestly, that was, that was among the mentality of the people there. And I want us to see with a clear picture from Mark's words here what Jesus was really about. Was he about healing, ultimately? Was he about making friendships for people? Was he about, what was he about? He was about teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And that entailed signs and wonders. But let's not flip those. Let's not get them out of order. Let's see Jesus for who he was, for what he revealed himself to be about, for his, what his mission, uh, his stated mission was. The miracles of Jesus attracted crowds, but Jesus didn't come to create a spectacle. He did not come for applause. He didn't come for that. His mission was to proclaim good news, and that included deliverance of many kinds. Without turning you to Luke, let me quote to you these words from Luke 4, 18 to 19. And that passage is verbatim Jesus himself speaking in his hometown of Nazareth. 
as he stood up in the synagogue and he, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And this is the message that he preached. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This was a 700-year-old prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah at that time. And he read it. And he said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. This is the content of his preaching. If you say, well, what was he saying? What was his main teaching? What was he saying? Here it is. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The good news of the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, for the forgiveness of sins. That's the message Jesus gives. Let's come back to Mark 2. Look at verse 3. While people are coming, they know Jesus is a healer. And for some people, that's all they know. They don't know that he's the son of God. A lot of people wouldn't begin to think that. I don't know that the disciples believe that at this moment. Look at verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic. Now, was he a quadriplegic? Was he a paraplegic? We're not told, but he obviously had severe paralysis. That it took four men to move this gentleman on some kind of a cot, a bed, what we might call a stretcher. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, get this, he must have some friends. A lot of friends would get somebody to, the, to, the, to this house and say, oh, must not be the Lord's will today to, that we could see the master. We better go home. We can't get in there. Nobody's letting us in. How will we ever get in there? Must not be God's will. We better go home. We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. And what do they do? They go, they go find a way to get up on the roof. And they dig a hole through the roof. They must be pretty determined. They must be pretty committed because that's going to raise a little bit of ire with somebody, probably the homeowner, eh? <laughs> and, and who knows if Jesus is going to appreciate that. I bet the scribes aren't going to like it. They're pretty uptight people. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna be listening to Jesus, you know, down below where this all of a sudden this dirt and everything's going to start falling down on them, saying, what in the world's going on up there? Who are these guys? What do they think they're doing? They're disrupting what we're doing. We're sitting here waiting to find this, this young rabbi say something that we can accuse him of, and they're disrupting the whole thing. You can just imagine the scene. It's got so much going on here. But they, they, they're, they're persistent. They could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, must have been a decent-sized opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Can you imagine that, sitting in a meeting, in a room, and all of a sudden this, this person starts to come down on a stretcher? You know, they, they were, it's a coastal town. Maybe somebody had to run down to the marina and get some ropes, uh, you know, enough that they could let him down safely and evenly, and they got him down there. I don't I doubt that the length was great, but they, they had to do it safely. And they laid him, and they, they knew what they were doing. They got him right in front of Jesus. They knew just right, right, right about where to dig the hole, and they guided it down and got him right in front of Jesus. They let down the bed in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, it's a comment on, I think, all of them, their faith. They all had faith in him. They had heard of him. They understood his message in some measure. When he saw their faith, it doesn't single out the paralytic or any one of the men. It just, it's just, it's plural. When Jesus saw their faith, so that includes the paralytic. In fact, he calls him son. 
So that's a statement of, of that young man's faith. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that might catch us by surprise. It might have caught that young man by surprise. Because I don't think that was his first thought as he was being lowered down through the ceiling. Do you? I think he was being lowered down with thoughts of this man could heal me. I need to be healed. My friends know this man could heal me, and that's why I've been brought here to this temple, to, not to the temple, excuse me, to this house today. Jesus was full of surprises, always surprising people. Jesus tells him something he didn't expect to hear. Jesus gives him a better gift than this man was probably asking for. But I believe that this young man had faith in who Jesus was. I believe this, there's no question, because we're saved by faith through grace. I believe this man had great faith in Jesus. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Now, listen to what it says. It, they, didn't, they didn't verbalize that. It says that they were questioning in their hearts. So in their, they're questioning it. They were musing. They were pondering. They didn't say, what are you doing? They were thinking, what is he doing? They were thinking that. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit they that they thus questioned within themselves, said, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? That must have taken them by surprise because blasphemers, if he was a true blasphemer, last I heard, they, they don't read minds, but he could. And last I heard, blasphemers don't forgive sins, but he could. And last I knew, blasphemers... Uh, they don't heal people either, but Jesus did all three of those things. So they were in for the shock of their lives, weren't they? And that's how this account ends, of course. Now, to be fair to these guys, to be fair, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, to be fair to these guys, uh, they, on the face here, were right. They were right. Uh, for anybody to, to speak for God in such a way, that was, what Jesus said was inflammatory, if he didn't have the authority to say that. And so they weren't off base to say, what is he saying that for? They understood the, the Jewish law. They knew it inside and out. But their questioning was really something that moved them just to be cynics. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Which would be a fairly easy thing to say, because how would you prove it? So he's an, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Or rise up, take up your bed and walk. If you say that, you're going to have to prove it. Jesus was setting them up is what I believe. It's kind of like a chess move. He was two or three chess moves ahead of them. Verse 10, but that you may know. He now he had spoken. What, what do you think is easier to do, to say this or to do this? Basically, that made him think. And then he goes ahead and proves it, which gave proof in, in the healing that he's about to do here, gives proof that he has the power to forgive. And he did it. He heals him. So we read on. Rise up, take up your bed and walk. End of verse 9. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. To forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And it was done. God speaks a word. The Son of God speaks a word, and it's done. He doesn't have to say some mumbo-jumbo over him. He doesn't have to say, go home and sleep, and when you get over it, when you get, get up, you'll start to feel better. No. When God speaks, it's done. It's over. The healing's in, it's, it's done. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose. Imagine the, the, the jaws that dropped in that room. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. I wish I'd have seen that uh, in living color. 
He picked up his bed and went out before them all. A new man inside and a whole man on the outside. He went out before them all. You imagine that they must have just moved away because it was crowded. It was a standing room only thing. He picked up his bed and they must have just moved away. They must have just sensed the power of God over that man. What? And he walks out of there. It says that so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, let's go through this real quick. How good would life be without good friends? Think about that. We're talking about true riches. How good would your life be without good friends? And if you, if you have good friends, you have great riches. This man, this paralytic man, we don't know his name. Scriptures don't give us his name. But he had, through those four friends, great love. They, they, they had great love for him. They had great faith in the same Lord that he came to know on that day. Those are the kinds of people that you and I want to have in our lives, do we not? We want to put those kinds of people in our lives. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I'm going to just give you three words that describe them. And I hope that we have friends that could be characterized by the same three words. Persistent. Persistent. Friends that are persistent. These guys were persistent, right? In doing good to him. I, I said earlier, they were willing to go through more than a couple hurdles to, to do what he needed done for him. He was so dependent on them. Second word, creative. They were pre that's pretty creative to say, uh, we don't know how to get you to Jesus. Uh, we had good intentions. We're persistent. We got you here. Uh, we're going we're gonna to dig a hole in the roof. <laughs> that's, that's pretty creative. Third word, sacrificial. At the end of the day, somebody had to repair that roof. You better believe it. <laughs> there was probably quite a discussion from the homeowner with those four friends. Uh, somebody fixed it. I'm sure somebody paid for that. I'm sure these men were, were men of integrity and didn't walk away from that responsibility. They weren't just vandals, right? They, they took care of it. And flip that a little bit. How are you in terms of your friendship uh, behaviors towards those that you're friends with? Are you persistent at being a friend? Are you creative in how you treat your friends? Do you love them creatively? And, and are you sacrificial? Put that together because to, those arrows need to go both directions, don't they? We don't want to just be receivers, but we want to be givers in our friendships, if they're real friendships. How great is the friendship you're willing to offer? Something there about lessons from, the fr uh, from those friends. The lesson from the paralytic, life's deepest needs are spiritual and they are invisible. This man's greatest needs were not physical. Now, Jesus met them, and we praise God for what he did. But life's greatest needs are not physical. This man who was healed, he's silent to us in the story, isn't he? We don't know his name. He doesn't speak. But he's clearly a person who had faith in Jesus. He saw in Jesus more than a miracle worker. He saw a forgiver. He received what Jesus gave him. When Jesus said, my son, my son, I love that statement, my son, your sins are forgiven. He received that gift. You know, Jesus knew all people's hearts. So when Jesus said that to him, he said, my son, he knew that man had faith in him as, as his savior. He knew it. He knew it. In verse 5, he observed the faith that was present in those, all those men who presented their friend to Jesus. But he addresses this encumbered man in particular, calling him son. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And, the, and, and friends, that, that's the mission for which Jesus came, to set the captives free from sin. That's what this table is about. It's about remembering that we've been set free. 
It's remembering what our Lord has done and what he did to, to set us free. This man got healing thrown into the deal. In fact, it was necessary because the healing became evidence that the sins were forgiven and that Jesus had the authority to do what he said he could do. It was proof of his ministry, of his identity to those people. And yet, the religious leaders, known as the scribes here, the Pharisees haven't been introduced to us yet, that's coming, but the religious leaders, known as the scribes, in their private thoughts, considered what Jesus did blasphemy. Look again at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, again, to be fair, they knew that the rabbis couldn't forgive sin. They knew that the priests couldn't. The scriptures that they knew well made it clear that God alone could forgive sin. So it seemed outrageous for Jesus to say such a thing. It was truly scandalous, unless Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. The lesson from the scribes, if I can sum it up, is guard your heart. They knew the facts of, of the word all right. They had that right. But they weren't ready. In, in fact, they really weren't ready for God to stretch their faith and to show them new things. You know, with the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, there were many surprises, were there not? His manner of arrival was a surprise, being born as a babe in Bethlehem. That caught everybody by surprise. His care for the marginalized was a surprise. He hung out with the dregs of society. People didn't understand that. He was called a friend of sinners. They didn't understand that. They thought he'd be a friend of the religious elite. In fact, he was toughest on them. His miracles were often a surprise. His authority was a surprise. Another surprise that he brought to the table was the way of forgiveness. They thought the way of forgiveness was, was always tied to the temple, and it had been up to that point, the temple down in Jerusalem, where, where you, would, you would go and have the priests to put forth these sacrifices for your sin, and God would forgive. But Jesus was changing all of that. He was moving the way of sacrifice from the temple, away from the temple, to a person, to himself. And he himself was on his way in this very ministry to becoming the final sacrifice for their sins. And they weren't open to that. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't respond to what God was doing in the world. Their hearts had just become hard. And the point of that for us in application is we've got to be careful, friends, that we just don't become hard-hearted people, that become just difficult people that basically think, you know, think with too much cynicism or difficulty. Let me ask you an honest question. As you age, none of us, most of us here, I shouldn't say none of us, many of us here aren't young. Some of, some of you are. But are you sweetening with age or are you souring? Ask yourself that question. Put a check on your own thoughts and attitudes. You know, they have an impact on who you are, on who you're becoming and upon the people around you. I hope and pray that we become sweeter as we grow older, not bitter, not hard people. It's easy to become negative. It's easy to become a naysayer. It's sad. Daniel 11.32 says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let me apply that to what we're talking about here. One of the actions of a maturing saint, a maturing believer, I believe is this is to take our Lord's words about forgiving and to practice it. To take the teaching of Jesus off the pages of Scripture 
and to say, I need to be a forgiving person. As I age, I need to be forgiven, and I need to extend forgiveness more and more. And if I don't do that, I'm probably going to grow old and become a tired, old, bitter person. And the world has enough of them. And I don't want to become one of those. I'm not saying it's easy. Because a lot of things in life, as you go through life, are painful, aren't they? A lot of disappointments. A lot of things upset us. A lot of things discourage us. But we could become like those scribes. We could become just cynical people that are naysayers, that are just downers, Debbie Downers, if you will, about everything. Be careful. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. And if you see some of these negative things, get rid of them. Throw them out. Say, Lord, don't let me become bitter. Don't let me become that person. And then, of course, the lesson from Jesus. He shows us here he not only has the power to forgive sin, but he became the perfect sacrifice on which divine forgiveness is based. This ministry story we have in Mark chapter 2 is one story of his journey towards Jerusalem and towards the cross where he becomes the substitutionary atonement for all of us, which our table is about today. We can have confidence in the gospel of Christ. Verse 12 says, He rose, the paralytic rose, and immediately picked up his bed. And he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's have confidence in who our Lord is.